Client of you. Congratulations. All right. Um, we are continuing our series in Exodus. Uh, if you have a Bible, please open it up to Exodus chapter 16. Um, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry. The text is on the screen. If you're not in a place where you can see the text, feel there's plenty of chairs today. So you can move uh, wherever you like. You know, you can have a row to yourself pretty much. Um, before we begin, let's pray. God, I pray right now that as we come to your word, as we hear the message, that we would be very aware that we have a God and Father who loves us deeply, who cares about us, who walks with us through the difficult times. In Jesus' name, amen. Question. Why does God let us struggle? I, I think most, knowing most of you guys, you know that becoming a Christian does not automatically solve all of your problems. Why, why isn't it that, why, why doesn't God just fix every problem? You know, kind of put you on velvet for the rest of your life once you become a Christian. Why? Why isn't it that as soon as we commit to Christ, we're like set for life financially? That doesn't happen. If, if that has happened for you, let me know. <laughs> Why isn't it that as soon as we say yes to Jesus, commit ourselves to Christ, that we aren't automatically healed of sin? Right? The, the, term, the Bible term is sanctification, made holy. Why doesn't that happen like that? Why does God allow us to still struggle or get sick? When we find ourselves in these places where we're feeling insecure, stuck in sin, out of a job, worried about finances, stressed, struggling, why, why does God let us struggle? And I'm going to go ahead and say out loud what some of you guys want to say, but won't is that you fear that the reason that you're struggling and God is letting you struggle is because he did something wrong and he's letting you have it. Or that his character is not one of goodness or love. That he's just kind of jacking with you. Why does God let us struggle? I actually want to try and change our attitudes towards struggle a little bit. All right, I want to show you an awesome picture of an awesome guy. This guy's name is Alexander Dobot. He's, there he is. That's Alexander Dobot. You see that kayak? He's like the world record holder for number of transatlantic kayak trips. You heard me correctly. Transatlantic, meaning... He goes from the tip of Africa all the way to South America. And the last one he did, pictured here, he completed when he was 70 years old. He did in the North Atlantic with all the storms and all that stuff. All right? I want to be clear about something. He's nuts. 
He's also my hero and he should be yours. Because he sleeps out there. They don't show this, but like apparently your clothes rot off your body from seawater. So yes, he's nude there. But like that is an amazing feat. That is strength. That is endurance. That is toughness. That's all kinds of things, even if you don't ever want to do it. I was reading an article about my new hero and the man I want to raise me further. (laughs) And they asked him if he had any regrets. And he said, yes. He said, one time when he was training for one of these transatlantic kayak trips, there's no motor on that, by the way. It's, It's just him, okay? When he was training for one of these kayak trips, he was practicing. He's from Poland and he was... He was, you know, doing weeks and weeks of kayaking in the river system in Poland. And, and one night, he, uh, he decided, he, he, he had pulled out for the night and he was going to sleep. It was cold and damp and rainy, right? And he saw just over a hill, there was like a little inn. And he chose to go and sleep in the warm inn and eat hot food. Instead of camp by the river in the drizzle and the rain, eating uh, cold soup out of a can. <laughs> they said, why? Why is that a regret? He said, because I chose comfort over struggle. It actually robbed me of some of the strength I knew I needed for what I was trying to do. Again, he's nuts. But what if he's on to something? What if there's something in struggle that's actually needed? What if there is, is, is part of this insecurity, part of this struggle actually contains a blessing for us? Now, in Exodus chapter 16, the Israelites have been free for one month. And God has taken them out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And now they are in a place that a lot of people go to in the Bible, the wilderness. Okay, Jesus went to the wilderness famously. Prophets go to the wilderness A lot of the time, in preparation for something, God takes his chosen people out to this place of struggle and insecurity. Now, one one little block we have is we think North American wilderness. We're like, wilderness, right over there, after church. I'm headed up there. I'm going to lay in a hammock in the wilderness. But I want to show you a picture of their type of wilderness, a, a place called the Negev. Okay? That's their wilderness. They're right now, and this is, they're in the Sinai wilderness, just to the south of this, but that is what they're in. Where's your food besides that flock of sheep? <laughs> Where's your water? Where's your shade? Where's your shelter? This is not a place of security and pleasant strolling around, you know, skimming rocks in the river. That's not happening, is it? This is a place of dryness. This is a place of insecurity. This is a place of struggle. Now, it's a couple of week journey from Egypt up to the land of promise where God is taking them. You know how long they stay here? 40 years. 40 years God has them in the wilderness. Why? Does God not know the way to Canaan? Of course he does. Is God mean? Or... Is there something they need out here? Is there something that has to happen to them that can only happen in this place of insecurity and struggle? Let's take a look at the text. The first thing we see that the wilderness does is it takes away 
a false sense of security. Verses 1 through 3. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. So one month then. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. What was the nature of their complaint here? The people of Israel said to them, and by the way, I always, whenever we come across one of these grumbles, I do my grandmother's voice because she was worried about everything. She was a a five foot ten Italian lady uh, from Queens. So this is how she talked. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots. <laughs> Gotta love the meat pots. And ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out to the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. We're all gonna die. Hunger. Mantra. You're too skinny, you're gonna blow away with the wind. How many times did I hear that? Didn't take long. For them to go from, God is delivering us, oh yeah, killed Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea, miracles and all that stuff, to what? We had meat pots back there. Oh, slavery was nice. Sure, they killed our kids. Sure, they, you know, did whatever they wanted to us uh, physically. Sure, they used us like pack animals, but we had meat pots, though. All right? So that security is taken away. One, one thing that you can say about Egypt is they had a lot of food. Here, here's an aerial view. I'm going overboard with slides today. Get used to it. Here's an aerial view of Egypt. Okay? This is today. This here is the Nile Delta. That's where the vast majority of the Egyptian kingdom was. You see that green right there? This is the most fertile land, probably still in the world, the greatest, uh, certainly in the ancient world, the greatest food producing region. You fed the entire Roman Empire out of that five times over, right? Where are they now? They're over here. Oh, my laser pointer died. I actually have another one. But going from that green, that food, the meat pots and the cucumbers and the bread and all that, all that you want, that's security. You know where your food's coming from. What about there? What about in the Sinai wilderness? You don't know. It's not there. You're not secure. So the wilderness takes away false security and it forces us to see ourselves. Look at verses four and five. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. Okay, so God has them out here where there's no food. They have to depend on him to provide bread. And he's going to every single day and only enough for one day. Why? To test them, to see, to show them to show where their heart's actually at. How much do they actually trust God? Do they believe he's going to do it again tomorrow like he promises? Right? So the wilderness, first thing it does is it shows us our need. Now, I'm saying this in front of a cardiologist, so I hope this is right. If it's not, just say it is. When a heart doctor is analyzing someone's heart, sometimes they'll perform what's called a stress test. Yes, a stress test. 
I can talk more confidently now. That was a tense moment for me, I'll tell you that. I've read about it on the internet and, you know, did not go to medical school. But, you know, certain problems are not going to appear unless you elevate that heart, unless you put it under some stress. And then you see what's actually going on. A time of insecurity and struggle, it shows us where we actually are. A lot of the time we're like, yes, I, I believe, I believe God's going to come through as long as I have plenty of money in my account. I believe everything's going to be all right as long as everything's going all right. But as soon as we lose that security, as soon as our false sense of security goes away, what do we do then? Are we like, you know what? Jesus died for me. God rules all things. You know, my faith is firmly on, on the unshakable throne. Or do we fall apart like me? who after a little bit of sleep and I'm a little bit behind on schoolwork, I couldn't sleep last week, right? I would love to have the kind of faith where I just don't sweat it, where I'm just walking, trusting in God without the stress. But you see, once, once a little insecurity comes my way, once a little struggle comes my way, what do I do instead? I look to, okay, well, I need to work harder and harder. I need to get up earlier and earlier. I need to sit here and churn over everything I have to do. None of you guys do this, huh? <laughs> yeah. Right? The wilderness shows us our need. If you never come to a place of struggle or insecurity, you're going to live with a pretty delusional idea of where your faith in Christ actually is. But, you know, as much as we love having our weaknesses exposed, there's also something glorious in the wilderness. Look with me at verses uh, 5 through 10. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see what the glory of the Lord. Remember that phrase? Because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. So it's kind of they're, they're grumbling against Moses and Aaron, but they're simply messengers for God so that they're really grumbling against God. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness. So from their camp, they look out towards the wilderness. And behold, what? The glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. This is something kind of interesting. Maybe even very interesting. The glory of the Lord, this special manifestation of God's glory in the entire Bible, is only seen where? In the wilderness. Only happens a few times, and it's always seen by those who are out in the wilderness. The wilderness is where we see God's glory. But it's also where we see daily provision. Look verses 11 through 20 with me. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. 
And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. That's, so manna in Hebrew actually means what is it? They called the bread what is it? It's funny, right? Yeah. Good Hebrew joke. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. The people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever, whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. So the, the, the nature of this manna, this bread, this provision is what? Every day. Every day. You can't save it up. You can't get future security with manna. You've got to trust God every single day to do it again, and then again, and then again. And if you try and save it up, it becomes worms. Okay? So the, the, the wilderness is not only where we see God's glory, but it's also where we see his daily provision. They are having an experience with God that shows who he truly is, the glory and provision, his care for them, right? The wilderness is where we experience who God is. Trivia question for my basketball fans. Actually, if you're too big of a basketball fan, be quiet, because I want to see if someone else can get this. All right, NBA logo. You guys have seen it, probably, even if you don't watch basketball. There we go. Do you guys know who that is a silhouette of? Jerry West. Jerry West, that is correct. Laker great Jerry West, whose nickname was? No one knows it. Mr. Clutch. You guys know what clutch is? Clutch is when the game gets tight, right? We're talking crunch time. The score is whatever, whatever. It's tied, and the seconds are ticking down and, you know, fades away for the win. That's clutch. Coming up big at just the right dire moment. Question for you. If there was never a dire moment, could Jerry West ever be called Mr. Clutch. No. Why? There's no clutch to come through in. You need crunch time to see who Jerry West really was, Mr. Clutch. Is that making sense? Is this an overstrained sports analogy? I don't think so. I think this is working, right, Jerry? This is working good. If you're never in crunch time, you never see that Jerry West is clutch in the same way. If you want to experience who God is, that God is your security and provider, what do you need? You need some insecurity, don't you? If God's going to come through for you, you've got to be short on that cash. You've got to be a little worried about where, where you know, getting a job for you to experience God as provider. You want to experience God as healer, physical, emotional, whatever. You need pain, don't you? You want to experience God as Savior? 
we could lose Mr. Clutch. You want to experience God as Savior, you, you need a real awareness of the brokenness of your sin, don't you? To really understand that Christ is Savior. If you want to experience God as being enough, you need to lose a lot. You need to not have anything else to look to. Isn't that right? In other words, if you want to know who God is, you don't need comfort. You need struggle. You need wilderness. Those who are in the wilderness, those who have gone through the struggle, those who have fought daily battles know God in a way that those who have lived in comfort never can. So what do we need in the wilderness? First of all, it shows us our need. Second of all, it's where we experience who God actually is. But there's a really important purpose. There's something that God has to accomplish in us in the wilderness. Just to zoom back real quick of what is this all for, right? Israel, Exodus, the whole thing. Well, we have to remember that in the book of Genesis, at the beginning of the Bible, there's a promise to a guy named Abraham. And God promises him three things. He promises that there will be a people who come from him. He promises to give them a land of their own. And he promises that through this people that come from Abraham, all nations of the earth will be blessed. So God wants to bless the entire globe through the people that come from Abraham. This people that we're looking at in the wilderness, right? Would you say that that's a pretty darn important job to, 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 to clue the rest of the world who don't know God in on who God is? That sentence work out? I feel like it was an awkward sentence. It worked out, right? Okay, good. If, God, if, if, if Israel is key to God's plan to win back his creation, to bless all the nations, to make himself known through this people, and eventually, of course, to bring the Savior from them. Well, they've got an important job. And there's a big problem. This people who's supposed to be the model home for humanity, this is what life looks like walking with God, is what? They don't trust him. One month, their food gets a little low. And they're like, we're going to die. We want the meat pots make us slaves again. Right? Not exactly the people who are going to like... Show people what's what with walking with God. Hey, here's how good walking with God is. We want to be slaves again. Forget about God. Give us the meat pots. God's at work in them in the wilderness. Look with me at verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. What are they supposed to not do today on the Sabbath day? Don't go looking for more bread. You've been given enough for two days. God's going to do it again. Just trust him, okay? Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some, people, some of the people went out to, get, to gather, but they found none. <laughs> okay, what do we see? They don't trust God, do they? 
The Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse, not Moses, but the people, to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain, each of you, in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So what do they do? They don't trust God. Who do they trust? Their ability to like, go gather more bread, right? They have self-trust, not God-trust. That's a pretty negative pattern for the people of God. And so God is working on breaking that pattern. I've heard it said it only took God a couple months to get Israel out of Egypt. It took him 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. It's breaking their pattern of self-trust. And next we're going to see it, it establishes new patterns of trusting God. Look, at me, look with me at verses 31 through 35. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. So they, 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 they make a memorial out of God's provision for them, his daily provision for them. Right? This becomes part of the people's story that they had to depend on God every day for 40 years. And he did. And he came through. They had to break these patterns of self-trust and learn patterns of trusting God. So the wilderness, it, it not only shows us our need, it not only shows us who God is, but it's also where we learn new patterns. I once uh, saw a, a story on the news, you know, one of those like human interest stories that aren't actually news, but it's like, hey, this is cool, um, about a family who had a dog that only had hind legs, and it could walk upright. It ran around, it played, fetched the ball, all that stuff, right? And they're interviewing them, and they say, oh, tell us the story of, you know, whatever, Rocco, or whatever his name was. So tell us, how'd you get Rocco? And they're like, oh, well, he was born this way without front legs, and it was sad, and wanted to take care of him. So at first, you know, we just took care of him, fed him with a bottle or whatever. And they said, well, how'd you teach him to walk upright? And everyone got, like, quiet, and no one wanted to answer the question. They just kind of looked at each other. And then finally someone said, well, we waited till it snowed, and then we took him out there, and we laid him on the snow because he hated how cold it was on his chest. And so he started to try to get away from the snow, and they would encourage him on it, right? But, like, that was the only way he was able to develop the strength and balance in his hind legs so that he could walk upright, right? Does that mean? I feel like it, it must have been hard for them because they loved that little puppy, but he had to learn these new patterns, right? There, there's a, there's a, 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 a maxim in the recovery community that change, ha wait, I don't want to mess it up. I'm going to get it right. Non-change has to hurt more than change. Okay, if anyone is going to change, non-change has to hurt more 
than change. That's the only way we really learn new patterns. How do we break patterns of self-trust? You know, when my go-to is just to stress out, work, work myself to death and whatnot. Like, it, it, it's, it's to have those patterns fail. It's to be in a place of struggle where my only choice is to depend on God. Right? So, the will, so struggle is something we need. It, it, it isn't God turning against you. It isn't that you displeased God in some way. When we find ourselves in this place of struggle, we get to see our need. We get to see who God really is. And, and, and we have our patterns transformed. I said this in another sermon. I'll say it again. When you find yourself in the wilderness, don't waste the wilderness. We all go there. We all are going to find ourselves in a place of struggle, of pain, of insecurity, of need, of lack, of fear. And the thing is, is when we're there, all we can think is about relief. That's understandable. Right? Like when we, when we find ourselves in a place of struggle, we're just like, can we just have it be over? Can I just learn what I need to learn, God, prove I've learned it, and then we move on? Because that work for you? Because that works for me. Okay? We want it done as quick as possible. Because what we're after is a life of happiness. God has a different agenda. He wants us to be holy. He wants us to learn to trust him. He wants to break our old patterns. He wants to teach us to trust in him. He wants us to, 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 to be about his mission. You know, it's like all of us are kind of working this plan. If we're Christians, we're like, I, I just want to live a nice, easy life where I'm kind of like not worried about anything and then I die and go be with Jesus. That, that's my plan. That's my plan. That's what I'm trying to do. That's what many of us are trying to do. If not all. But here's the thing. If you want real faith, like strong faith, not, not the sort of fragile, hothouse flower faith that we tend to have, right? Faith that when it all falls apart, faith that when things truly go sideways, and they will, like you sleep like not like a baby, because they don't sleep all that well, those who have babies, no. Those who sleep like a baby after eating, okay? <laughs> like, like, what if, when things fall apart, your faith was such that it carried you? That you actually didn't have a cortisol spike, you know? That you slept soundly, knowing that you had God with you. We want that kind of faith. If we want transforming faith, if we want to have faith that makes us beautiful, we're not going to get there through comfort. We're going to get there through struggle. We're going to get there through, through God working in us. We're going to get there through having our need exposed, seeing who God is, and having God transform us. Don't waste your wilderness. I want to show you guys one last slide. This is a cecropia moth. 
and it's about the size of a hand. I hope that most of you, I know Amanda's kind of freaked out by this. She's not even looking. <laughs> it's, it's incredibly beautiful, right? Like, as moths go, this is, this is a 10. <laughs> the thing is, is when it's coming out of its cocoon, right, it takes it hours and hours, sometimes days. If you were to see a cecropia moth emerging from its cocoon, it looks like it's suffering greatly. It's struggling. It's, it's having a hard time. It looks painful. And you might be tempted to just, you know, snip that, help it out a little bit. But here's the thing. If you do, it'll actually never fly. That, that process of coming out of the cocoon and having the, the cocoon, like, nearly strangle, it actually pushes the they have blood or whatever they have, the stuff in them, it needs to be pushed through the wings or else their wings will be shriveled and flightless for their whole very short life. It actually needs that struggle to become what it's meant to be, to be able to fly. If, if we want God to grow us up into real human beings, into the people of God on God's mission, Comfort is not our path. Struggle is. I'm not saying go out and find it. It'll come to you. But when you're there, don't waste the wilderness. Because it's where we see our need. It's where we see who God is. And it's where God transforms us. Please pray with me.